All right. Um, upper airway obstruction. This is probably, of all the stuff we deal with in ENT, this is probably our worst nightmare. Um, and it, it, it's, there's no real sexy, easy, 100% guaranteed way to get around one of these things. Um, when do we suspect it? Usually you can get some clear picture from either the history or their presentation. Uh, if it's a little kitty, they'll usually have a history of fever. Um, and there'll be some sort of, or if it's a foreign body, there'll be some sort of history of some activity they were doing prior to the time. They'll be playing with marbles or something. So you can get some sort of a sense of what may have happened, either from how they present or the history and how fast they deteriorate. Usually foreign bodies will deteriorate fairly quickly. An inflammatory process like epiglottitis or something like that will deteriorate a little more slowly. They usually present with, with pretty severe shortness of breath. And Strider, um, of course, you can have croup, which is you, typically not as, as concerning, and they can have Strider, um, but oftentimes you don't know that when, when the thing starts. And so trying to get uh, a sense of how they look, you know, are they apprehensive? Do they look like they're panicking? Are they desaturating? These are the kind of things that can give you a clue as to, you know, are you really in a hyperacute emergency, or do you have a little time to deal with them? Um, you can see if they can speak or not. Uh, if they can talk, that's helpful. Uh, if they can't talk, that's uh, concerning. Um, you can see if they have inspiratory or expiratory strider, although that is m more for the textbooks than anything else. In practicality, oftentimes they have both, so it's not usually that helpful. The, you can do an oral exam in an adult. Uh, typically, it is, it is considered not such a good idea in a small child because of the concern if it is epiglottitis, although we don't deal with that so much anymore, um, that you would make them worse, or because you might exacerbate the foreign body and convert a partial to a complete obstruction. In adults, that doesn't tend to be the case so much, so an, an airway exam in an adult is considered a reasonable thing to do. <clears throat> as far as the foreign body aspirations are concerned, most of them are kids, but by no means all of them. There are some elderly that will get this. Typically, it's their dentures. And you laugh, but you'll, I guarantee you at some point you will be intubating somebody and you will fish out some partially d destructed denture out of the back of their throat. So that is typical. Also, in people your age, and why do people your age end up with airway obstructions from foreign bodies? Because of the stupid drinking games, right? What's that one with the little bottle cap that you pop into the cap and then you got to drink it if you don't get it or something? Yeah, and you end up drinking it and there's a little foreign body in there and boom, it's in your airway and then you're dead. <laughs> right, so you, yeah, yeah, right, okay. And then of course there's things like fish bones and then Fairview, we don't get Fairview patients too much anymore, but we used to get them, and they ingest anything. I mean, anything. Salt shakers, knives, coat hangers. You name it, they'll eat it, and uh, they'll also breathe it. Okay, if it's a foreign body, there usually is a fairly abrupt onset. There's usually some sort of history of doing something stupid, like drinking games, or like the kid was playing with marbles beforehand. <coughs> if they can talk... They will tell you where the pain is, and typically it gives you some idea where the foreign body is. If it's in the jaw, it's probably in the pharynx. If it's in the sort of neck, cervical, esophagus area, that's probably in the trachea. And if it's in the chest or the thoracic esophageal area, it's probably in the bronchi. Again, direct visualization works with uh, adults. Not such a great idea with kitties. You can get an inspiratory, expiratory chest x-ray, which can sometimes give you a clue if it's in the bronchi. If it's a complete obstruction and they take a deep breath, they will not pull air into the obstructed side. The unobstructed side will overinflate, and you'll see shift of the mediastinum to the obstructed side. 
If it's a partial obstruction, there's a ball valve effect where you suck air in, but you can't get the air out. And so by the time you get the uh, expiratory view, you will see the mediastinum shift to the good side. <coughs> so it depends what you're dealing with, whether it's a complete or a partial obstruction. You can also get a soft tissue ladder of the neck. That can be helpful not only for foreign body, but for either retropharyngeal abscesses or for epiglottitis. And uh, adults are now the most common cause of epiglottitis. They do get it, and so it's reasonable to look for that. Uh, what do you do? You know, if they come in with a complete obstruction, usually they're in full arrest by that point because it takes that long to get to the emergency department. You can try Heimlich valves. Uh, if there's some uh, evidence of air movement, you can try direct inspection and possibly removing a foreign body with forceps. We have done this here, and it has been very effective in obviously restoring their ventilation. Uh, if it looks like it's stuck at the level of the cords, then a cricothyrotomy is not unreasonable. Uh, if there is a partial airway obstruction and they can ventilate, probably the best thing to do is nothing. Probably just call ENT. You do not want to convert a partial to a full airway obstruction. So as long as they can get air in, if you can give them oxygen, maintain their SATs, probably the best thing to do is get them to the OR as quickly as possible. Um, don't paralyze them. If you, the worst thing you can do when you have a partial air obstruction, if you're trying to, paraly trying to intubate them, is paralyze them. Because then if you can't get the airway, you're screwed. So what you want to do is use something like ketamine, uh, uh, which will allow them to keep breathing, but put them out so at least you can get a look and see what you're dealing with before you try to intubate them. So if at all possible, do not paralyze them if they have a partial airway obstruction. Diphtheria, who cares? We're never going to see it. <laughs> um, bacterial tracheitis, this is something that we'll see occasionally. Usually it's in kitties, usually between the ages of zero and four. It's a bacterial inflammation of the trachea. They end up starting usually with some sort of viral prodrome that then they suddenly get much sicker, and that's because they develop this, this like toxic epidermal necrolysis of their trachea from staph. It's usually staph. It can be other things, but usually staph. And they're just really toxic. They're, they're partial airway obstruction. They look febrile. They look toxic. And they usually end up being intubated. They end up in the ICU. Yes? Um, in a sick looking kid, you're thinking about all these things, you know, like trophic I have a hard time knowing the best tests to differentiate those etiologies. The lateral, next film, I guess. It, it, you know, again, start with the history, start with your basic physical exam. 90% of the diagnosis is in the history. So, you know, if you're worried about and then this morning they started coughing a lot. They started breathing really fast. They got worse. They spiked a fever. The kid's fussy, won't calm down. And so you're, you're thinking of an infectious process. So Why is that not taking towards It could be epiglottitis, except in this country at this time, yeah, with the you know, I would not go to epiglottitis. Re retropharyngeal abscess, maybe. So chest x-ray, soft tissue lateral at the bedside, I probably would do. I think those are reasonable tests to do. So with tracheitis, you probably see soft tissue edema. You might. Uh, and then also, the, you know. how well are they handling their airway or their secretions? You know, are, are they hypoxic? You may, I mean, oftentimes they're, they're really sick, and it's pretty clear what you have to do. And they just can't maintain their airway. They're not ventilating well. We've got to intubate them. And you don't know what the diagnosis is. <laughs> 
differential. Correct. You're going to treat them all right. 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 If they're if they're if they're stable enough that you can get films, great. If they're not, you're going to have to tube them. Excuse me. What? Oh, it says Pittsburgh. <laughs> Go Steelers. We're easily distracted. Yeah. All right. Um, initially, it can look like viral croup, but usually, it's if you've seen a bunch of cases of croup, usually don't mistake this because croup cases, you know, they they come in looking around and they they're they're kind of whiny and fussy and they want something and they're not really happy with being there. And these kids just look like stool. They don't look well. And it's usually not that hard to sort this out there. Oftentimes, we'll have purulent secretions uh, that they're coughing up where you don't see that with croup. And uh, generally, not neck stiffness. <laughs> Just uh, they might, depending on what you know. If they have, uh, especially if they have um, a retropharyngeal abscess instead, that they can sort of have torticollis. They might have some neck stiffness, but generally not with this. Um, obviously, they usually end up. Intubated and, and, and admitted. Uh, if they're older, you may be able to get away without intubating them. But you know, you shouldn't feel badly if you start reaching for the ET tube. That's not an unreasonable thing to do. Because of staff, you want to add vancomycin, <coughs> racemic epinephrine. You know, why not? Um, no data supporting this. But you know, we had this guy in bed one. I don't know who had it with me. I don't know if you're here. This guy with a cancer, and he came in like with an airway about yay big, and uh, we gave him heliox, and we were just like, what can we do to buy time to get ENT down here? So we we gave him racemic epinephrine, we gave him heliox, we gave him everything, and, and he stabilized, and he went to the OR and got trached. Um, so I don't know what worked, but we frequently do this because we're desperate. And what's the downside? Essentially zero. So we do it. But there's no evidence that it works. But would I do it? Yes. Because I got nothing else to do. Um, epiglottitis is now a disease of adults. It is still frequently due to H influenza, but it's in adults, not in kids. Uh, there are other causes, but basically the ones we will see will be none of these, and it will be one of these. Um, they oftentimes will present with basically, especially the adults, they'll say, I've been feeling crummy for four days, I'm getting hoarse, my throat really hurts. Every time I swallow, it just really hurts. And the tip-off is you, you look inside and you don't see anything. The throat looks great. So if they're febrile and they're hoarse and their throat really hurts and you don't see anything, it's reasonable to get a soft tissue lateral. <clears throat> Uh, for kids, little kids, again, we don't see it that much anymore. Um, and, and so I, I don't even think it's worthwhile talking much about it. But for historical vignettes, yes, they tripod, they lean forward, they drool, all that kind of you, You're just very unlikely to see one of those. Or much more likely to see an adult, and they do not present this way. They present differently. Um, in an adult, you can do direct laryngoscopy. You can turn the laryngoscope instead of like going in this way, you turn it around and pull the tongue down, try to see if you can look and see the epiglottis. You can bring ENT down with a scope and put it through the nares and take a look down and see if you can see the epiglottis. All that stuff is safe in adults. They tend not to obstruct right away. You can get a lateral film, and here's a good example. This is an adult, obviously, with epiglottitis. And you can see right here the big thumb-printed epiglottis. Even the arytenoids are swollen. 
this individual did not get intubated, uh, was put in the ICU. There was a trach tray at the bedside, uh, but he was given steroids, IV antibiotics, and uh, you can see here now, this, it's, the swelling is going down, the swelling is going down here. Never got intubated, did well. Um, that tends to be the course of adults with epiglottitis, but there are, if you look, there's a New England Journal article about 10 years ago that, when this was really new that looked at a bunch of these cases, and several of them did require airway intervention. So you can't be cavalier about it. You do need to put them in the ICU, but generally speaking, if you get on top of them, give them antibiotics and steroids, they usually do pretty well. Um, again, intubation in the OR, that's the children's thing. Um, may observe in the ICU, most do not need intubation. Yeah, I know, I, somebody paying attention, right. Used to be nafcillin, right. Ever, anybody here ever use nafcillin, by the way? Yeah. Oh, you still use it, all right, interesting. <laughs> okay, all right, not, not too many people use that anymore, but in the old days, we used to use nafcillin, right. <clears throat> Croup, uh, obviously, it's, it's a viral. There's several different viruses that can do it. We're heading into the influenza season, so we can probably expect to see more of this. Uh, late fall and early winter, this is us. So be prepared. We'll start seeing this. Generally, it's kids under age six. That's because they're the ones with the smallest tracheas. If your trachea gets to be a certain size, you generally don't have, you may get a little bit of a cough, but you don't end up with this really kind of significant uh, airway issues that, that croup presents with. Um, it usually, you know, it, it doesn't happen right away. There's usually some prodromal symptom, runny nose, low-grade fever, and then they develop the cough, and then uh, all of a sudden they'll have this, uh, you know, strider, and the patients get real excited, and they throw the kid in the car, and they drive him in. There's this whole thing that the cool mist of the night sort of magically breaks the spasmodic croup. <laughs> Uh, and that has not been duplicated in any formal research. But you will get that story. Um, and so people will still use cool mist. Do I have any evidence that cool mist makes any difference? No. Um, it's benign. Uh, it doesn't seem to hurt them, but it probably doesn't do much good. Uh, if you want to give them racemic epi, that's also okay. Um, there's no real uh, good science to tell us what to do other than tell us what doesn't seem to work and that is cool mist, although you will get that story frequently. Uh, Strider is not uncommon. The barky cough we've all heard about. Once they get down to this thing, this is pretty scary. Most croupers will not get hypoxic and cyanotic, uh, but some will and may require uh, intubation. If you do intubate them, you probably want to use a half size smaller than you, than you would normally use, because there's going to be some airway edema, and you want to anticipate that before you get there. For the spasmodic croupers, you know, this is again the, 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 the a barky cough. They look really crummy at home, and by the time they get to the hospital, they look better. That's because spasmodic croup doesn't last that long. Probably not because of the cool mist, but that's what everybody talks about. But they, it, they'll be better by the time they get in, as frequently what happens. Or they get better soon after they arrive. They get to triage, and by the time that the nurse brings you to see the patient, you, you don't understand what the problem is. All right, the, the diagnosis basically is clinical. You can put a pulse ox on them. Most of them will be okay on the pulse ox. Labs are not useful. I'll show you some radiographs. God, you'll see that. You'll, when I show you this, you'll go, that's not helpful. Why would I do that? The steeple sign, it's overplayed. It's not that useful. Uh, don't worry about it. It's basically a clinical diagnosis. There are things out there called croup scores. They're a lot like the um, pain management number. You know, when you ask everybody, it's a 10. So it doesn't really matter. All we care about is do you want pain meds or not? So it's a binary answer. All we want to know is do you need pain meds or not? For a croup score, all you want to know for our perspective is are they sick or not? 
If they're sick, we've got to intervene. If they're not, we don't have to worry about it. What the croup score is is a good research tool to see what interventions make a bigger difference, but it's from a clinical management side of things, they're not that useful. Okay, so this is somebody uh, with croup, and this is the steeple sign. If you look at these two things, you'll go, this doesn't help me at all. So let me show you a different slide, which is a little bit more helpful. This is a normal person, and so you can see there's more of a squaring off right here, where here it's a more pointy. Now, you know, honestly, would that make any difference to you guys? Nah. So, you know, it's great to know for the boards. I'm not sure that I ask you this. I've never in my entire career found this useful to me. Um, they usually come in going, <coughs> they have croup. I don't get a soft tissue lateral anymore because it's not H flu and it's not a retropharyngeal abscess, so I don't bother with this. This is only useful if you really think there's something else going on, so you get the films and, oh, there's no epiglottitis, there's no retropharyngeal abscess, oh. There's a steeple sign. It must be croup. But it's, it's one of those kind of things. The vast majority of them, you walk in, they have croup, you give them something for it, cool mist, racemic epi, whatever, they get better, they go home. All right, so this is the whole thing about the racemic epi. The reason I put this up here is there was this whole thing that talked about the rebound phenomenon. That if you give them racemic epi, now you have to admit them because they're going to rebound. That, like so many other things, does not exist in the real world. What happens is the stuff wears off after a while. And shockingly, if they're kind of sick and the medicine wears off, they get kind of sick again. It's not a rebound. They're not worse than they were before. They're bad like they were before. They were bad enough to make you treat them, and when the stuff wears off, they're going to be bad enough to make them treat you again. So it's not a rebound effect. You're just seeing the natural disease come back. So the problem is, if they were too sick to go home beforehand and the stuff wears off, they're probably too sick to go home now. That's what you worry about, is that the native disease isn't going to get better. So if you treat them with this and you watch them for a while and they seem to be doing better, you can send them home. But you want to watch them because when the stuff wears off, if you haven't fixed the underlying problem, whatever it is, they're going to be just as bad as when they came in. They're just going to come back. So that's why you observe them, not because of a rebound phenomenon. You just want to make sure that they're better enough that when they go home, they'll stay home. Again, this talks about the ET tube and using a half size smaller, uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, admission criteria, not surprising. If they're not getting better, respiratory failure, yeah, wow, I'm surprised about that. You know, in, in, inability to, to maintain their SATs, there's nothing here that we don't do for everybody. This is not like, oh, for Coopers, there's a different thing. If they're not doing well for all the reasons that people with airway issues don't do well, we bring them in. If they're satting well, if they're, they're, doing, they're, they're tolerating POs, you know, then they're going to go home. All right, a couple of things that are a little more significant for us that are, that are rare enough that we don't see them very often, but you really don't want to mismanage them. Well, this is Ludwig's angina. This is basically an infection in the submandibular space. I have a good picture of this in a minute. And the big issue with this is not so much sepsis as it is airway obstruction. This becomes an airway emergency, and, and that's our biggest issue. So that's why it's here. Uh, usually, these are people with bad teeth. It doesn't have to be, but most of them are. And uh, they'll have some sort of trauma to the floor of the mouth, and the poor dentition, it sets up a process, and they end up with an infection. It's usually not a tough diagnosis to make. It's pretty clear by the time they come in. I suppose you could see somebody very early on that has a little bit of swelling, maybe Ludwig's engine, maybe not. But 
people generally don't come in when they have a little bit of anything. They usually don't come in until they know they're sick. And by that time, it's pretty obvious that they're sick. And what we're worried about is complete airway obstruction, mediastinitis, all these other septic complications. But immediately, it's the airway problem. And this is what they look like. Or like this. They have this big thing here. Our tongue is like this. And they're like, have a tall ring. And it looks really bad. Uh, and you put your finger in there. And, ah, don't do that. It hurts. So they got this obviously big inflamed submandibular process. And it's like, oh my God, how am I going to intubate this person? This is where the, none of you know how to do this. But if you know how to do nasotracheal airways, it can save your butt. Because this person is fairly reasonably intubated with nasotracheal approach. It's a nightmare to do it any other way. You cannot get an ET tube in here. You can't get a glide scope in here. Um, it's, it's really a tough procedure. So this is sort of the, the poster child for why a second airway procedure besides the glide scope or, or, or oral tracheal intubation is needed. S many times they don't need surgical decompression. Uh, it's, sometimes they do, but many times just IV antibiotics, a lot like tubo ovarian abscesses, uh, will respond to, to medical management and will not need surgery. These people are that way. Uh, oftentimes you need broad spectrum coverage because it's mouth flora, so it's gram positives, it's gram negatives, it's anaerobes. Um, any questions about that? Is that something we, we're, we're really held accountable for? We've got to know this. Yeah? Do we have a fiber scope in our department? We do. We do. Paraphonsic abs? I do nasotracheal intubation, so I'm, <laughs> I don't know where the scope is. <laughs> but yeah, if you don't do nasotrachs, then, then you got to know where the scope is. Uh, Paratonsillar abscesses, this we're pretty familiar with. We see a lot of these. Uh, classically speaking, they tend to be young people. Um, uh, where, oh, don't tell me I didn't put this up here. Ah, where is it? Uh, adolescents and young adults, right. This is, this is almost, if you're 40 years of age or over, you hardly ever get this disease. I, I, it's almost reportable. This is a disease of young people. It's, it's teenagers and young adults. Uh, and almost always, they come in on antibiotics because they had a strep throat, somebody gave them antibiotics, and it doesn't work. So that's generally the history. It's like the guy with the snake bite, you know, the 20-year-old who's right-handed, who's drunk, who comes in with the snake bite. Same with these people, young person, Sore throat for three days, fevers, antibiotics, and they're getting worse. Uh, and it's typically um, strep, but uh, can be other actors, as uh, no surprise there. Um, they look fairly uh, ill, but they're, they're usually stable. They have a hot potato or because it hurts to talk. Uh, they are oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes will be drooling. And when you look inside, you see this very sort of mass that's pushing the uvula to one side. Now, all of that is good, but the hallmark when you know, when you know you have a peritonsillar abscess is when they have this. Trismus isn't something you get from a sore throat. You don't get it from um, uh, uh, any kind of tonsillar inflammation or adenovirus or anything else. Trismus is a deep tissue process. That means an abscess inside the tissue. So if they don't open their jaw because it hurts, they got trismus, they got a peritonsillar abscess. Treatment, there's actually two approaches that you can use. One is you can just go in there and slice it open, just make a, a longitudinal incision. What is the advantage of that? Is that the cure rate on the first pass is higher. These people have less of a chance of bouncing back. The problem with that is the complication rate is you're more likely to, do, to cut something you didn't want to cut. 
and so there has evolved this thought of doing serial aspirations in like three different places in the peritonsillar abscess. The advantage of doing this is less complications. The disadvantage is that they have a higher risk of recurrence. So you have two choices. You have the slice and dice, which is more likely to get you definitive treatment and you'll never see them again, but is also more likely to give you a complication, versus the aspiration thing, which is less likely to be definitive and more likely to bring them back, but also less likely to get you into trouble. So it depends on if you're sort of risk-averse or if you are not. If you're risk-averse, you'll probably use this technique. If you're not, you'll probably use the slice and dice technique. Um, the people that get into trouble with this and who you might want to consider admission on are people with diabetes or other serious infections or who simply you, you can't make them comfortable. Usually within an hour or so after this procedure, you can allow them to they look better, they feel better, they can tolerate POs, you can send them home. Not everybody. Some people just simply are still vomiting, they still feel sick. Probably better to admit those people uh, and continue IV antibiotics and uh, hydration. It's mostly for hydration because usually if they're otherwise healthy, uh, the uh, drainage of the abscess is definitive, but just in case, you may want to uh, be sure that you don't screw this up and, and that they can tolerate POs. Sometimes ENT will refer them out on a couple of days of, of PO antibiotics, but obviously my biggest concern is they've got to be able to drink because if they can't tolerate POs, they're going to be back. Retrofrontal abscess tends to be a disease of either young children or immunocompromised adults. Um, the number of the agents can be all over the dartboard. Um, the one I will show you is actually an adult, uh, although typically with t it's more common in kids. The reason being because kids have a lot of lymphoid tissue in the retropharyngeal area, which atrophies over time, and by the time you're an adult, it's gone. It's like your tonsils. They disappear. So you can't get an abscess in tissue that's not there anymore. So it tends to be mostly in kids. But if you're an immunocompromised adult, of course, you can get an infection anywhere, and, and people do. Uh, they tend to present in adults similar to uh, epiglottitis in the sense that they'll have a really sore throat, maybe a muffled voice, really hurts when they swallow, and you look and you see nothing. Looks like a normal throat. What's the problem? I don't see anything. That's the time to think about either epiglottitis or retropharyngeal abscess. The exam is minimal. This is not a diagnosis that can be based on physical exam. You do, this is one of those things where you actually need radiology. Um, and the uh, soft tissue lateral of the neck is usually definitive. Sometimes it can show a small amount of, uh, of swelling. And we, we had a case similar to this where we had a gal come in and had ENT involved. She was a VIP and she had a retropharyngeal abscess that was brewing. It wasn't really definitive at the time. Ended up going home. We missed the diagnosis. She came back. Ultimately got admitted. Never required drainage. Never really developed a big mass. Had a little bit of soft tissue thickening. And that's this sort of retropharyngeal cellulitis, I think, is, uh, that I mentioned somewhere in this. I'm not sure which slide it's on. But most of the time, it's, it's more dramatic than that. Uh, it looks like this. Um, you get this big retropharyngeal swelling that's not supposed to be there. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be, you know, the space here is maybe, uh, and this is like two to three millimeters and maybe 21 millimeters, not two to three centimeters. That's ridiculous. You see something like this. This is a slam dunk. This was an immunocompromised. This is a person with uh, um, lupus that we saw in this department many years ago. And, and she did not do well. All right, treatment is surgical incision and drainage, sometimes intubation. You know, you can start to, you, you can probably give this part of the lecture yourselves after doing this enough times. The management options are pretty limited. IV antibiotics, admission, drainage, and airway protection if necessary. 
Okay, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Angioedema. Okay, this there's some new stuff about this. <clears throat> this traditionally is several different diseases, though most of the ones that present with angioedema we can treat. If it's an allergic reaction, uh, if it's not familial, if it's not these guys down here, if it's most of the stuff which is some sort of environmental trigger with a histamine release, we can deal with that. They end up with basically facial swelling. What we're worried about is, is basically uh, loss of the airway. This is another airway emergency. Uh, if the airway's not in jeopardy, then it's Miller time. We don't have, I don't care if they, they may be ugly, but it doesn't matter because the ugliness isn't going to kill them. It's only if their airway is in trouble. So that's what we care about. It's the epiglottis and the larynx. Um, so this is, you know, traditionally what they come in like. They get these big, uh, swollen faces. And we don't really care about that. We care, as, well, what's going on behind that? So let's look at the back of the throat. If the back of the throat's okay, they're not hoarse, they're not having any trouble breathing, then this is basically a sort of a give them steroids, give them antihistamines, and we'll see what happens. Um, the, the issue comes down, okay, you know, this is all the other nonsense that goes with it. It's, it's pretty straightforward. The problem is what do you do with ACE inhibitor angioedema? What do you do with hereditary angioedema, the C1 esterase deficiency disease that basically laughs at every drug you throw at them? It's like I spit on your steroids. They are worthless to me, and they are. In the past, what we've done is we've given these people FFP. And, yeah, I know, it sounds like witchcraft. That's what my reaction was initially, too. But there, there's reasons why that might work. Uh, and, and FFP does work to a certain extent, but there are case reports of people with laryngeal edema who got FFP who actually got worse. But there is good, no, good news, and, and the good news is listed here. There are now new agents that are out that specifically attack the pathophysiologic process for ACE inhibitor edema, for C1Q esterase deficiency, all that stuff, so we can definitively treat these people. So why am I not happy? The cost of these things are astronomical. And when you order this from the pharmacy, you're going to get pushback. From, no matter which one of these you pick, they all cost twenty or $30,000 for a single treatment. So nobody's really wild about using these. Does it only take a single treatment? Or Usually it just takes a single treatment to abort the process. Uh, the FDA has looked at it. They work. You know, they're really pretty decent stuff. And it's like the immunologists love it because we can finally treat these diseases that, that have the potential to kill people or that, you know, had to intubate them for. But, you know, how much money do you have on you? You know, it's like 20 grand for one treatment. It's like, woo, not cheap. So that's why when you think, first of all, you can't pronounce them. But even if you could... <laughs> You, 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 it's going to be hard to get them from the pharmacy because they're going to want a really good, you know, are they hoarse? Are they about to die? It's like, yes, they're about to die. Okay, we'll give it to you. So, of course, the cost will come down with time, but not in the immediate future. So you should know about them because they are the, really the treatment of choice. They are the, will become the standard of care because they work, but they're really expensive. Um, you would want to know about them because if they're horse and their airways involved, yeah, you want to give this because this stuff works. Even if you have it completely ruled out. I mean, they're on an ACE inhibitor, but they also ate something funky. Well, what will happen is usually they, they usually don't come in an extremist. I've, I've not seen one in extremist yet. They'll come in, we throw steroids at them, we throw uh, H2 blockers, H1 blockers, eye of nude, wing of the whole, you know, boom, boom, boom. And they just go, I'm still swollen. All right, you know, and it's 45 minutes later, they're still swollen, and now I'm getting hoarse. Okay, done. You're on an ACE inhibitor, you're getting one of these. On the other hand, they go, well, I'm no better, but I'm no worse. Probably just going to sit on them. And what we used to do is just, to, if they didn't get better, we just admitted them. 
uh, and somebody else watched them until they started to get better. Not that And it'll be back. Well, that's why I said it's not that sick. So you're yeah, thinking that, about it, but you're going to defer yeah, it, Generally speaking, it, it's not a stat test. <laughs> yeah. It's not. It's not going to. By the time that test comes it's back, not that bad. you can. Right. You can. Right. Right. But usually, the reason you order this is because they're sick. If they're not sick, and this is your differential, no one's going to release this, and probably appropriately so, because they generally don't go from being stable to death. You know, in five minutes, it's not that rapidly progressive. Um, but if they come in and this is in the differential and they're sick, you're not going to have time to get any of these tests back. They're probably sendouts, and they'll take days to come back. Uh, so you need to make the decision. But it, I like everything else. Although you can think of all the, the challenging, difficult. What if I do this? How am I going to handle this? Most of the time, they either look like this guy. Not great, but not bad. Not hoarse, not drooling. We got time. Or they look like the guy with the, oh, I'm dying, you know. And so you know it's either I order it or I don't. I bring this up, though, so you know these things are available to you. They do work. FDA has approved them. They're really pretty good stuff, but they're expensive. So you, you want to order them when you really need them, not for somebody like this. Yeah. So just to give you an idea of some frustration, I had, the only lady which was really bad with this was a schizophrenic, uh, ex-heroin addict with no IV access who came in and I walked into the room and all I could think was you hear about these nightmare cases everyone's talking about you knew like one of the day you're going to get it right now we did send all those we started an IO line uh, and did an awake intubation uh, with EMT in the room and then they got the blood test back like two days ago and then it went to practice committee because we didn't order any of the non-pronounceable medicines. <laughs> so she did well. Well, I do have I do have yeah, some... Yeah, some because yeah, yeah. they sent the blood test. Right. She was in the ICU, and then they came back, and the head of ENT talked to the head of ER, and then he sent me to the committee, and then he did all this stuff. Uh, yeah. and, and order one of these unpronounceable... And, and was three days in the ICU cheaper than those? Uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I do have some good news, though, for all these heroin addicts who are schizophrenic who don't have very access. See this SC? That stands for sub-Q. Go! <laughs> now, now, this has been only approved for prevention, but it works in the acute setting. So if you're hosed and you get another one of these, you can give it to them sub-Q and you'll probably be okay. You just got to know which unpronounceable one to order. And that's, you're never going to know that. You're going to look at these things and I can't remember which is which. So um, there is one of them, though, that's, that starts with an I that you can give sub-Q that works. How fast is it? 30 minutes to an hour. You know, so not like that, but not like come back in 24 hours and we'll see if you're better. Uh, they work reasonably well. You know, within an hour or so, you start to see improvement. All right, and I think... Oh, uh, one other thing. Just I'll make a point and I'm going to stop. If you get a TMJ dislocation, <clears throat> everybody know how to do this. Because it's really easy if you know how and really frustrating if you don't. Okay, I need a volunteer. I'll pick my fellow. <laughs> yeah, I need a chair. Let me borrow this for a second. Okay. If they have this, I was yawning and this happened to me. So what you do is you don't, like the, what most people want to do is they want to come up to the front of them, open your jaw, and they want to put their thumbs in right here and
try to push down. But the anatomy of the wrist is such that going this way is very difficult, and it doesn't go very far. And you can't get the real leverage you need to get it back in going this way. But if you turn it around and go this way, ooh, now that's much easier. So what you want to do is approach them from the back, not the front. You put your thumbs in this way, and now you've got all kinds of torque, and you can you push down and lever back, and it'll pop right back in. Now you may need to use. Oh yeah, it goes inside the mouth on either side. Okay, you push down, you know, and you can lean 